uh, go right into Philippians 2. Let's do that. Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And I'm always glad when the exposition of where we are anyway really matches with the season and the perfect providence of God because we've been talking about the incarnation of Christ coming, humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant. And now this morning, even as we look towards Next weekend, being the Christmas holiday times, we're talking about Christ's exaltation. So we are right at the center of the gospel and at the pinnacle of the gospel, pointing to the exaltation of Christ. This is part three on the mind of Christ, and we want to think gospel. We want to have a gospel mindset this morning. And so let me read, and I'm going to begin at verse five and read through verse 11 again to recapture the totality of this very important gospel paragraph. Verse 5 of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, this morning we're talking about the exaltation of Christ. Let me ask you this question. What comes to mind when I say the words Jesus or Jesus Christ? Uh, there is a theologian named A.W. Tozer. Maybe many of you have read him or heard of him. Um, he was a pastor. Um, he's gone to be with the Lord, but he wrote a very important book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that very meditative book, he says this, that I think is the most important phrase in the entire book. It says, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. And I want to, even though that's a very important phrase and profound phrase, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, I want to tweak it a little bit for our text and say it this way. What comes to mind when you think about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about us. The reason I tweak it is just simply this. Jesus Christ is the most clear expression we have of who God is. Jesus Christ is God revealed to us. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Think about that. Just think about that phrase. God is with us. And it's not by accident that God, to reveal himself most clearly to us, took on humanity. God took on humanity. He didn't lose any of his godness, but he added 100% humanness to himself so that we could understand God. Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is God, and we know God through the revelation of Christ. So what you think about Jesus and how you understand him 
is how you understand God. And what should change your life most of all is your vision of God. A lot of preachers that preach about a lot of things and a lot of preachers that sometimes preach about things in terms of step one, two, and three and how to change your life or do this or that. But really, when everything is boiled down in terms of the Christian life and how to live it and what should motivate us and drive us, the one single thing that should drive our life and Christian maturation, our decisions that we make, our priorities, is our vision of Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, how you think of him, or put another way, having the mind of Christ, having the attitude of Jesus ever before you, is what changes you. That's how Christianity works. So it's important to have the right and correct vision of Christ because it should control you. One person put it this way, Alistair McGrath, a theologian, he, he said this, and it's sort of a way to shock you into what I'm trying to put forth as a point. Um, he says that God is Christ-like. It's kind of an odd way to put it, but it's an interesting way to understand that when you understand the humility of Christ, you are meditating upon the humility of God. When you understand that Jesus came down here to us to save us, you need to understand that's not God number two coming for us. That's the heart of God. The Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all behind the gospel. And so God coming down here is the humility of God, the servant heart of God for you and for me. God is the Savior. And Equally so, God who is exalted and holy and wonderful and awe-inspiring is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, my friends, is Lord of all. He's Lord over all. He's either your personal Lord where you know him as Savior, intimate friend, your Father. He's your Lord personally or he is your Lord and you don't know him at all but he's still Lord over your life and Lord over your eternal destiny. He is Lord. Can I get a witness? Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? He is. He is. And we need to know him in this way. I was, a couple years ago when I preached this at a Christmas uh, scenario here, I was studying for it at Starbucks off Diamond, sort of sitting in the corner trying to get done and uh, free myself up for some family time. And so I, I took all my books and went there and was, was plowing through um, this text. And a man came up and he was waiting for his coffee at the little you know, barista stand. And I said, oh man, I haven't invited anybody to the Christmas Eve service yet. And so I need to do that. I've been telling the church to do it, so I should do it. And I'm like, hey, how you doing? And we've struck up this conversation. He's oh, you got a lot of books. He likes to read. His daughter likes to read. My daughter likes to read. So we're talking. And I dropped the bomb. Hey, I'm the senior pastor at Anchorage Grace Church and would love for you to come to a Christmas Eve service. Suddenly, seven feet of separation happened. Instantaneously, he's off put. And, hey, you know, oh, I got my coffee and I'm kind of out of here. And he said some very sobering words, whether he knew it or not. He said, well, I, you know, I've been into that thing before and I've got a book you know, by my bed and I've been involved in it before. And then he said something that was very haunting, and he just said, you know, perhaps one day I'll get back to that. 
And that was it. That was the end of the discussion. And I was studying this, which says, at the name of Jesus, in other words, when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this man, one way or another, will get back to that and will either in glad submission be saying, Jesus, you have been my Lord and you are my Lord, or in forced submission, he will say, Jesus Christ you are Lord. It's one category or the other. And once Jesus comes back, the books are closed, the door is shut, and people's eternal destinies are sealed. Do you understand that? It is our loving and yet very hardcore message and understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. And his lordship means all of creation, past, present, and future, will bow, will yield, will submit will confess lordship. And some will go to heaven, and most will be condemned and doomed to an eternal destiny in hell. And so it's my job um, to open up the exaltation of Christ so that we are transformed by our vision of Christ. And this vision of Christ motivates and compels us to tell other people about his lordship. As we live under Christ's lordship, we are also messengers of his lordship. To others. And so let's look at this vision of Christ. And I want to answer this question Does Jesus Christ deserve the name Lord or not? And this text says he does. Two reasons Jesus Christ deserves the name Lord. Number one, the first reason is this Jesus Christ, in verse 9, has been exalted by God. Verse 9, look at this. Therefore, God, speaking of God the Father, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Okay, when did this first happen? This happened after Jesus died and rose again. Verses 5 through 8 are talking about Jesus Christ. He's the subject of what's going on. Jesus, he's not seizing at, he's in heaven, he's not seizing at or grasping at his glory in heaven, though he is supremely glorious and fully God. He's not using that as, a, as an excuse to leave the world in its sin. Instead, he lets go of his glory and veils it in flesh, taking on humanity in the form of a slave coming down here on earth, living a perfect life of obedience, obeying God's holy law. So that he is the perfect sacrifice, becoming obedient to death, even the ignominious, horrific, bloody, awful, humiliating death on a cross, taking on the wrath of God, dying for our sins. So he goes down, down, down to the lowest point, and that's what he does then he rises from the dead. Now, he rises from the dead according to his own power, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, and according to the Father calling him forth. And this resurrection is his vindication. And in verse 9, the subject changes from Christ to God the Father. Now, verses 9 through 11 is God the Father acting upon the Son. First, we start with what the Son did. In verses 5 through 9, in his... 8 through his humility, and then verses 9 through 11, this is what the Father does because of his humility, which is the Father exalting his Son. You think fathers love their sons? 
this is an amazing portrait of a father's love for his beloved son. We move from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, to God the Father saying, son, you are the God-man, and I am going to exalt and vindicate and declare before all of creation that you are super exalted. And the picture here is something we can't comprehend, but it's God the Father, the first member of the Trinity, exalting the Son to the highest position. That is what's happening. Because Jesus is God. And we don't understand all of the inner Trinitarian dynamics there. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are the Godhead, and there's one God, but you have the picture of the first member of the Trinity exalting the Son. That is what's happening here. The therefore is because of the self-emptying of Christ, because of the obedience of Christ, because of the death of Christ, exaltation. It's a coronation, verse 9. It's a crowning that happened when Jesus rose and ascended. We know from Acts 1, 8, and 9, he ascended that he's going to come back in the same way that he went um, and it's a coronation that is vindicating Jesus, watch this, as God-man. See, Jesus was not earning something when he came down here on earth. It's not that he was, you know, at a 99% and then he came here and finished it off and now he's really worthy of being glorified. No, Jesus was as much glorified before he came as he was in this exaltation scene later on. So it's not an earning of exaltation. It's a vindicating of exaltation. It's vindication. In other words, it's an affirmation that Jesus, who now is God and fully man, the God-man. He always was God, but now he's the God-man. Now that he has done this, he is vindicated as fully God in glory. John 17 is where Jesus prayed about this right before he went to the cross. 17.1, we've talked about it. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Not in terms of performance, but he was obedient, right? He was obedient to the Father. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence. Look at this. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's not more glory, it's just the glory of Jesus who was always God, now is God and man, and he's vindicated as God, the God-man in glory. I believe we're going to see Jesus Christ with the human nail scars in his hands. And we, like Thomas, will bow in humility and say, Lord and God, and he'll bear the marks of saving us in his body for all of eternity so we can praise him for saving us from our sins. This is a principle that is at play um, that applies to us. The principle is if you humble yourself, then you will be exalted. That's what, exactly what Christ put on display. This was inevitable that he would be exalted. It's the same promise that we have, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves... Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, I know as Christians we are filled with our sins and we're, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have the Holy Spirit telling us when we sin, convicting us of our sins. We remorse or are sad by our sins, right? 
We, we, we see our sin ever before us. We're like Paul who says, I'm the chief of sinners. We say we're wretched men and women. We understand that. But do you understand that the Bible also calls you equally a saint? The Bible not only says we're sinners saved by grace, but we're also positionally a saint. Paul says, I'm writing to the church, you saints. A saint is a person who is set apart from their sins. And even though we don't typically day-to-day feel like saints, right? We are. And the Bible says that if you humble yourself in this life, as you live the Christian life, that one day you will be vindicated as a saint. It's kind of hard to hear sometimes when you see your sin, but you need to also recognize that Christ has forgiven you, and you are positionally declared a saint, and one day all of your sin will be taken from you. You'll be glorified. You'll be clean. You'll be free in heaven. You'll be a co-equal heir with Christ. And in the mind of Christ, we're already there at the right hand of the Father with Christ. And one day, we will actually experience our sainthood in heaven. That's why we don't venerate particular people, you know, as saints here to pray through or to or venerate. Um, We experience as all believers the knowledge that we are declared a saint. And in heaven, we will actually be experience experiencing the vindication of Christ where we are we are co-equal heirs with Christ exalted in heaven as saints it's exciting it's what Christ did for us to show us and lead the way to what we will experience in vindication and glory this is a high exaltation of the Lord that we're talking about that's something that's incomparable though I mean, even though we're saints in heaven, Christ is always the exalted pinnacle of heaven. He's the revelation of God to us in heaven. And the word here, if you look at verse 9, highly exalted, is a unique word. It's hooper exaltation or super exalted. And it's a word that's unique to Paul alone. He kind of made this word up, crafted it for this moment to say Christ is super exalted. In other words, there isn't a higher being that's ever going to be worshipped than Christ. Christ is not one of many gods. He's not, you know, just the historic man who walked around here in a robe and sandals that we respect and venerate as a great teacher. No, he is the master and Lord who is super exalted. Supreme, highest level. It was earned. And he is glorious. Um, Kent Hughes put it this way. He said it's a soaring exaltation. He said the brilliant moment on Sunday morning when Jesus came right through his grave clothes and grave clothes in the sacred body of his humiliation, glorious and radiant. He went to the right hand of the Father. Ephesians 1 echoes this. It says he's far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Well, he's, he's, his exaltation was a coronation. It was inevitable and it's in, incomparable. And we know this because God bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Now, what is that? What is going on there with that idea of Jesus being given a name? This is all part of the exaltation moment, the coronation moment, where God the Father is conferring a name on Christ, a name on Jesus. A lot of people read this text and immediately say, well, it's verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, so 
God, is, God the Father is making the name Jesus more special in that moment. And I don't think that's what's going on. This is actually a title that is expressing all of who Jesus is. In the Old Testament, when a name change took place, it was a marked moment. Remember, Abram's name was changed to Abraham, right? Jacob's name in the Old Testament was changed to Israel. So it's a name change moment. It's a, it's a name affirmation moment. You, you sort of have the gospel triad in Scripture where um, the second member of the Trinity is named Jesus, and Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's from the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means God or Yahweh saves. And the Greek derivation of that is Isus or Jesus, which means Savior. So we understand that attribute of Jesus as Savior. And then some people think Christ is Jesus' last name, but that's just another title. Christ or anointed one means Messiah means he came to die for our sins. But then there's a third name that's used in the gospel triad that we find here in the text, and that is the name Lord. If you look down from verse 9 through 10 and then to 11, you'll see this. It's a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, look at this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what is all creation confessing? It's confessing lordship. Jesus Christ is Lord. And I believe the name of Christ here is Lord. If you look back at verse 10, people say, no, it's the name of Jesus. But that's really not the the way the, the phrasing, that's not what the phrasing is pointing to here. It's not saying the name is Jesus. It's saying the name of Jesus. In other words, what is Jesus' name here that's being confirmed and and being lauded here in the text? The name of Jesus is, verse 11, Lord. Lord. It's the Greek word kurios, Lord. It's a word that's used some 7,776 times in Scripture. I I did, you know, a word search on Bible works. 7,776 times the word Lord is used over and over and over again in Scripture to express this indomitable attribute of God, that He is Lord, that He is master over all things. In the Old Testament, it was the word Yahweh. It's God's covenantal name. When God met Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, when Moses was being challenged to go and confront Pharaoh, Moses said, who shall I say sent, sent me? And God said, tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. And that is the word Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh that the self-existent one, God, very God, sent you, Yahweh. And that is the name in the New Testament, Kurios, which is Lord. Jesus would explain to people, explain to the Pharisees, explain to the crowds, explain to the multitudes that he is the I am. In John 8, you've heard it, John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He's the self-existent one. And he's saying here, Paul is saying, the name given to Christ, this exalted one, is Lord is Lord. He's picking right up on Isaiah 42, 8. If you, were, if you want to turn back there, Isaiah 42, 8. 
God through the prophet puts it this way. He says, God said of himself, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor praise to carved idols. I mean, friends, do you understand that Paul is saying that God is Jesus and Jesus deserves the name Lord? It is your job and my job, and it is our responsibility spiritually to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord because that is how he is revealed. And this is an exaltation that has already happened. God the Father has exalted the Son and has named the Son, who is the God-man, Lord, the incomparable Christ. If you have that vision, my friends, of Jesus Christ, if that's what goes through your mind, it'll change the way you live, it'll change your priorities, and it will humble you. The humility of Christ will humble you, and the lordship of Christ will humble you. And there are times through my days and times through my week, even this week, where I had to come to terms with myself and think, what do I think of when I think of Jesus? Oh, I need to think of him as the exalted Lord. And that vision of Christ is what changes your attitude and drives humility home to your heart and to your life. Why would you put others first? Because Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord of your life. That's the idea here. God the Father is vindicating the Son by calling him Lord. There was a time where Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees in Matthew 22, 41 through 46, and the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus up short, as they always were trying to do, and they said, you know, Jesus... Isn't it true that the Messiah is going to come through the line of David? In other words, they're they're trying to challenge Jesus and trying to trip him up and say, you know, if we do a Google search on Ancestry.com, I'm not sure that you exactly match up and go back all the way to David, and here you are kind of coming off like the Messiah. Well, Jesus from Scripture can prove that he comes from the line of David. But he wants to trump the situation and take it to another level. He wants to show that the Pharisees aren't acting by faith in their question. They're trying to trip Jesus up with um, some sort of snafu with his ancestry, which Jesus could win that battle, obviously tracing back through the genealogies of Joseph and Mary. But instead of doing that, he appeals to Psalm 110, verse 1. And he says that, How is it that David, who the Messiah is supposed to come from, says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, how is it that if the Messiah is supposed to come from David, that David, before the Messiah came from his line, was appealing to him as his Lord first? In other words, you have God the Father and God the Son, and David worshipped God the Son. By the Spirit of God, even in the Old Testament mind, he was worshiping a Messiah as Lord. How how do you put that together, Pharisees? That's what Jesus is doing. Do you understand that understanding that Jesus is Lord and that the very one they were confronting is their Lord, that's the issue. And they were missing it. Psalm 110 verse 1 is quoted, by the way, indirectly and directly 27 times in the New Testament. The lordship of Christ is extremely important for us to understand, and he is super exalted. And and I want to tell you this. Listen, 
before Christ came, exalted God. He's exalted God. Then when he came and took on flesh, died and rose again, he's exalted in heaven. It happened. He's coronated. But guess what? There's going to be a time when Jesus comes back and splits the eastern sky, and we will all see him face to face as the God-man, and he will be exalted in a unique way once again. That is what verse 10 picks up on. This phrase at verse 10 where he says, so at the name of Jesus, that is the moment of Christ's return. That is what theologians call the parousia or the presence of Christ. It's when he will return. At that point, at that moment, people's eternal destinies are sealed and all of creation, past, present, everyone at that point in heaven, on a, and on earth and under the earth will bow in yielded submission, in bowed knee and confession, saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what Paul is bringing up. He's saying he deserves to be called Lord because he was exalted, but he's going to be exalted again at a point in time. He points to this in Philippians 1.6. The beginning of the book of the, this Bible of our Bibles, it says, "He who began a good work in you will be in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is coming. Our citizenship is in heaven." Paul spoke of in Philippians three. He was always thinking future. He was thinking eschatologically. He's thinking about when Christ will come again, when he will return. At that glorious moment, something significant is going to happen. That's when, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, the book will shut, but everyone at that moment will bow in yielded submission to him. Speaks of this all through chapter 1 and in chapter 3. He was always talking about how I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I, I want to know him and be like him and be with him. Paul was always thinking towards that day when Christ will return in the future. He says what's going to happen at that moment is verse 10. Every knee should bow. It demands a universal submission and it demands a universal posture. Let me pick up on this idea of universal submission for a second. Does this mean that everybody one day will ultimately get to heaven just because everybody is submitting to Jesus Christ? I hope you've understood that's not where I'm coming from. You have category of Christians who are regenerate, who are saying Jesus Christ is Lord by the Spirit of God, and then you have the category of, of sort of everybody else that is bowing before Christ and is doing it out of a forced submission. The idea of being bowed on your knee is a very humble posture. It's the posture Christ took at the Garden of Gethsemane where he's before the Father asking for the cup of wrath to pass because he knew what he was about to endure going on the cross. It's you know, a lot of people in the Old Testament, New Testament, and even now pray standing up, and that's a very acceptable posture. We can pray without ceasing in all different kinds of ways. But when you are bowed low before God on your knees, this is humble submission. This is a universal homage that's taking place. But even though everybody is bowed low at that moment, that does not mean everybody is being swept into the kingdom. It just means that Jesus deserves to be 
bowed to. That's what it means. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's true. And everyone who the Spirit of God touches in their hearts, where he draws people to himself to say that and believe that savingly, will be saved. But everyone who does not do that this side of eternity, when Jesus returns, will not be saved, but will be judged for eternity, even though they're bowing in confession at that moment. You know who's going to bow one day? Well, Satan. He'll bow and he will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. James 2 says, even the demons believe and shudder. They know Jesus is Lord, but they're not saved. Um, Saddam Hussein, he will bow, forced submission. Nero, the, the Caesar at this time that was killing Christians, that Paul is a prisoner on death row, facing possible execution. He's flying in the face of Caesar, who the Caesar back then would be called Curios, would be called Lord, trying to take on the form of God as a king around the world. Nero will bow in forced submission. Um, Pilate, who is a part of crucifying Christ, he'll bow. In submission. Osama bin Laden, he'll bow. How about this one? The the 20-year-old that slaughtered kindergartners in Connecticut this week. You think he'll bow? He'll bow in forced submission before the Lordship of Christ. That's a posture of submission for most, for the wide road of people that are headed to destruction. That is a forced submission to declare to the glory of Christ that Christ is the holy judge and Lord. You know, I bring that up just to say, listen, in this holiday season, it might seem unloving to tell people about the lordship of Christ. You know, we, we might want to just promote grace, peace, you know, joy, mercy during this time. But it's important for us to share all of the gospel that people's eternal destinies are at stake. I mean, we want Christ to fix lives, to fix hearts, but we need to tell people about the Lordship of Christ, that he is master, that he is ruler, and he is Lord, and he is judge, and he is king. And we have to understand him for all of who he is and call people to bow now to him and know him personally and intimately. And if you know him savingly, then you enjoy the brotherhood of Christ and the relationship that you can have with him as Emmanuel, as the Prince of Peace in your life. So share all of that. It's not unloving to share all of who Jesus is because the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about who Jesus is. Your vision of Christ will determine how you relate to him and how you talk about him to others. And so I want you to be captivated by all of the gospel, not just the gracious humility of Christ, but the indomitable exaltation of Christ as Lord. He is this God. He is the one who, who fulfills Isaiah 45. You might turn there, Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. This prophecy is, is fulfilled 
and will be fulfilled at the coming of Christ. Isaiah chapter 45 is directly where Paul is springing from when he wrote these three verses that we are opening up. Look with me at verse 22. Isaiah, this is God through Isaiah saying, Turn to me and be saved. That word Savior, again, is where we get the word Jesus in the New Testament. All the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth, has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Do you hear that, my friends? Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. I want you and I want everyone that we tell, I want everyone in the world to be on the side of glory, not judgment. So we need to warn people and exhort people to know this Jesus who is Lord. I think a lot of times people um, disregard Jesus. They think that, you know, the Christianity that we go to is more of a self-help group or a crutch or something that we're just kind of locked into out of tradition or out of guilt or out of, um, you know, the, the fact that our family has always come to church or whatever. But to be named a Christian means that we have in our hearts and in our lives bowed to Jesus Christ, lordship, and submission now. And, and we reverence Christ. We revere him. We respect Christ as holy and as master. And we find joy in that. <laughs> I mean, that is the mystery of Christianity. We want this Jesus because we know him as revealed in this way as our Lord. And there is no stronger being than Jesus. And there is no safer place to be than in Jesus. You know, to, to live on the outside of that is a very desperate thing. It's a very fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. It's a very insecure way to live where you really don't know for sure who God is. He hasn't really been revealed to you in a sincere and crystal clear way through Christ. If, if that's your position, that's a very scary place to be. I, I think it was just this past week at our Grace Christian School, there was a horrible automobile accident where it was down by Girdwood. I think it was an SUV that got T-boned, and you know, one of our teachers had one of, uh, one of her children in the car. All the children are fine, but there were several kids in the car. Some three of them um, got launched out of their seatbelts through the glass, like down the hill into the snow. Those boys climbed back up, and yeah, they were in shock, and some of these kids uh, you know, were hospitalized, and it was very scary, but everybody's okay. But isn't life just a vapor? I mean, it's just scary to think, bang, your life's on its head. But then we enter into matters of eternal destinies. And we, we need to be very concerned for everyone to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and that salvation is in him alone. There is no other exalted God. There is no second way to heaven. There is no trap door. There is no way to climb in by having your good outweigh your bad. Don't be deceived. That's what everybody thinks who doesn't understand grace. It's falling in bowed, humble submission, being willing to confess and say, Jesus, you're Lord, you're it. I can't save myself. You're Lord of my life. Save me. Call me to yourself. And I will follow you. 
by your grace. That's the message of the gospel. He is exalted when we worship him. We don't worship him as a demon worships. We don't worship him in forced submission. We say by the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 3 talks about. It says that no one by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. When your heart's transformed, you don't, you're not inclined to curse God. When your heart is transformed by the gospel, you want to say Jesus Christ is Lord. That's regeneration. That's what the Lord does in our hearts. Where we see a text like this, we say, you know what? I want to get in on this on the front end of things and say now Jesus Christ is Lord so that when he returns, I am part of the singing chorus of believers to say Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what's going to happen to the ends of the earth. Well, all of this glory reflects back to the Father. Look at verse 11. It says, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to show you something. Just look over with me at 1 Corinthians 15, 27, just real quickly. There's something very beautiful and loving about this moment that I think Paul says it better than I can even explain it. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 15. For God, this is the future. This is when Christ returns and he is exalted at his return. And it says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, or Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. We have a dynamic here in the Trinity where the Father is exalting the Son but that exaltation is going to reflect glory back on the Father. This dynamic is going on. Look at the next verse, verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It's kind of like, make up your mind. What's going on here? God the Father's exalting the Son. It's like the Son's going, no, no, I'm exalted, but I'm going to give all glory back to you. And, and the Father's saying, no, no, I'm exalting you. And there's this interplay between the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit is energizing this, where the Trinity is on display in all glory in heaven. Guess what? Even you and I, if, as we are humbling ourselves in this life now to the lordship of christ we're going to get in on this as co-equal heirs of christ and i believe we're going to play a role where we are all mirror reflecting the glory of christ back to himself as the father and the son are reflecting glory back and forth to each other all energized by the power of the holy spirit ezekiel 1 talks about this it's it's an imagery and display where it looks like a laser light show if you read ezekiel 1 in that way Spirit of God, energizing, powerful worship. Revelation 4 and 5, you have the myriads and myriads of angels in heaven, the creatures of God, worshiping God, saying you are the creator of all things and the savior of all things. You're the lion and the lamb. You know what a myriad describes? It describes 10,000. So you have 10,000 angels, and it says myriads and myriads. So myriads, so you have 10,000 times 10,000 worshiping God. How many is that? Well, I'm not a math shark, so I have no idea, and I can't even multiply it here in front of all of you. But the point is, is that myriads upon myriads is more like a, an uncountable number. That's the poetic language of an uncountable number of created beings that are constantly saying, Jesus, who was, who is, and is to come, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of heaven. 
He's the Almighty. He's the Creator. He's the Savior. He's the Lion. He's the Lamb. Is, that is the vision of heaven. That is what's going on now, and that's what's going to be going on at Christ's return. Look at, back with me at verse 10. I kind of missed a portion that I think is really good to point out. It says that those who are going to be bowing before God, in verse 10 it says, are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's the picture of three realms. Heavenly worship, think of the angelic host, think of the believers who've gone before. And then you have on earth those who are believers and unbelievers when Christ returns and then under the earth. Perhaps that's a reference to those who have died, but it's probably talking about the demonic realm under the earth. All three realms are going to worship Christ. Some as those who are saved and rejoicing and others in forced submission. Well, does this vision from Philippians 2, 9 through 11 describe your Jesus? I hope it does. If not, then be recaptivated by a true biblical vision of Christ because this vision of Christ as expressed from Holy Scripture is the vision of Christ that will change your life. The lordship of Christ in this way is what will cause you to make the right decisions, have the right attitude. It, it will bring the mind of Christ to you, the attitude of Christ from Philippians 2.5. Have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. It comes from getting captivated by this vision of Christ. Do you realize that God is Christ-like? I mean, Jesus isn't different than the Father in terms of his essence. When Jesus came self-sacrificially, that is the self-sacrificial heart of God. Is that your God? Do you understand that God is not impersonal? God is not transcendent only. He is near. And he is loving and sacrificial and giving. And that is expressed in no other way person with no greater clarity than through Jesus Christ. Christ explains God to us. Well, a few points of uh, application for meditative purposes. One, um, you'll yield to Christ. It's inevitable, and I'm kind of speaking to you if you are unsure of your salvation. Children, teenagers, young adults, saints, seniors, I, if you don't know Christ yet, you're going to yield. It is inevitable. Um, the good news is, is because there's grace now, it's still t there's still time to become one of his children, to bow in submission. You still have the opportunity to do that. Number three, um, you, you need to let Christ's humility impact your humility, but you also need to let the exaltation of Christ impact you and humble you. Both need to be at play for you to have a, a clear vision of Christ. He, he humbled himself. You're going you're gonna to see that as we sing about him being the baby Jesus in the manger. But he's also super exalted. He is that exalted Christ, and that vision is the gospel vision of Christ, and that should humble us. And then lastly, um, dear beloved saints, if your spiritual pulse is weak this morning, if you feel frail, if you feel beat up, and you're struggling, and, and maybe you are just guilt-ridden over your sins, will you put the principle of humility into play and humble yourself? Go down with Jesus Christ. Meditate on these verses and humble yourself. And then embrace the promise that once you're down low, Christ will exalt you. 
what goes down will go up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, and Lord, I thank you for each one that's here as we have meditated on your exaltation. And Father, as you are exalted, but you have also exalted your Son, it is profound and it is humbling to us. And I pray, God, that if anyone here does not yet know you, that, God, you would draw them to yourself. Lord, we want to be on your side on the Savior's side when you return. And so, God, thank you for this meditation, and Lord, let your exaltation transform our decisions and our attitudes throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.